This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Hello, and welcome to Slate's Game of Thrones podcast, a TV club series that's just for Slate Plus members. I'm Isaac Butler, sitting in the hosting chair for June Thomas, and today I'm joined by longtime Slate contributor Seth Stevenson. Hello, Seth. Hello, Isaac. And Slate Plus intern, first of her name, Rachel Withers. Hi, Isaac. And today we're going to be discussing Season 7, Episode 3, The Queen's Justice, which I feel like could have just been called Family Ties because the very present theme of this episode, people talking about it almost every single scene, was family. And it began with the long-anticipated meeting of two characters who many fans think may, in fact, be family, Daenerys Targaryen and uh, Jon Snow. So, Seth, lead us off. What did you think of this uh, maybe family reunion? So this is a classic negotiation. I view everything through the lens of negotiation. Right. This is a classic negotiation. And Daenerys made a classic negotiator's mistake, which is she she stated a surface desire, which has been the need to me. But her underlying desire really is she wants to free Westeros from slavery and, and lead benevolently. And she it's like a first date, right, with Jon Snow. And she came out firing and was like, I want you to acknowledge my dominance. Right. What they should have done is like had a nice candlelight dinner, maybe on the map table, talked about like their underlying interests, like John's, I want this, you want this, maybe we can work together. I'm sure there's some way to do it. But she just came out firing and just talked about this surface desire, which was she wanted him to acknowledge her dominance and bend the knee to her. And I felt like we saw a side of Danny that I don't like, which is this arrogance uh, in her mm-hmm. that I don't love. And she also kept talking about lineage and ancestry. And what does that have to do with anything? But like her desire to rule, I think is really, it comes less from a place of, of like restoring the Targaryen name and like ancestry. And this is why it's more of a place of being the uh, breaker of chains, right? right. She, she has a, she has an actual passion, a righteous for, cause, a righteous cause. She has a passion to rule because she, there's great things she wants to do. Right. She wants to make Westeros free again, if you will. And and uh, she should have talked more about that instead of talking about ancestry and asserting dominance. And I just felt like she came out on the wrong foot. Interesting. And in the midst of that, of course, she has one of those great uh, Game of Thrones monologues where a character explains their core value system. And her core value system is faith in herself. Rachel, what did you what did you think of that moment when she said, you know, the only thing that's kept me going is is me? I think that was a really important sort of, as you say, like, value statement for her and for a lot of the women in the show because that is what has kept characters like Danny and Cersei and Sansa going at times has been reliance on themselves and not I mean they're they're so hardened by having been screwed over so many times that it's for them it's I rely on me. Right. That is interesting. All three of those women have been of course failed over and over and over again, right? Sansa and Danny are both sort of traded you know, she says I was traded as a broodmare, mm-hmm. as was Sansa, as was Cersei to yeah. Robert before the show began. Right. So it is very much like what do you have when you have no other protection? Right. Absolutely. And I feel like that this, this episode kept reminding us of like those awful things that have happened. Danny actually states it. I've been sold. I've been raped. I've been defiled. Right. This is why I am how I am. Yeah. And of course, the negotiations eventually sort of move forward by the person who is good at having candlelight dinners, maybe with a glass of wine or seven mm. and finding out what people want, which is Tyrion. Did we enjoy the Tyrion Jon Snow buddy comedy? I did, in fact. And I feel like the Tyrion Sir Davos comic relief was much needed. You know, the show can get pretty grim and serious. And I feel like Tyrion and Sir Davos together 
a little back and forth, a little rapport. And you're right. Tyrion is all about schmoozing, trying to understand what people really want rather than just saying, this is going to happen. I need you to do this. It's about getting to the bottom of things and seeing how you can make everybody happy. But you, you know, you're talking about um, the women in Sansa and Cersei, but both Sansa and Cersei, I mean, yes, they're relying on themselves, but I can't see what their real desire is other than simply maintaining power, holding, maintaining power, getting what they think is theirs. But, you know, it's Daenerys really does have a higher calling and so she does feel different to me. And I wish she had led with that. Right, right. Uh, and we'll we'll get to some Sansa in a little bit. I also want to say that I think this episode is really great proof of what an excellent utility player Peter Dinklage is, because no matter who he's in a two person scene with, it's always gold. You know, he's he's always able to make the like bring out this sort of comedic chops in whoever he's with that you didn't know. I loved how he undercut the classic Jon Snow brooding scene. How many times have we seen Jon Snow standing, you know, looking into the wind, hair flowing, yes, cloak flowing and brooding. And he comes out and he undercuts that and is like, oh, you look so much better brooding than I do. It, It really makes it hard for me to brood. I thought that was fantastic that he did that. I also enjoyed the little conversation coming up the causeway where Tyrion briefly acknowledged his marriage to Sansa and said <laughs> nothing happened and, and John says, I didn't ask. And <laughs> I thought that was hilarious and it was also beautiful because it showed like comparing that to the scene with John and Littlefinger last episode where right. he's so aggressive and so protective of Sansa. And when it comes to Tyrion, he just knows that Tyrion is a good guy and, and he just trusted that we don't need to talk about that. I, <laughs> right. I'm good. We're yeah. good. <laughs> yeah. It was sort of like, you know, you can imagine one of the Dothraki behind them being like, awkward. <laughs> I do feel like this whole gathering on Dragonstone is in fairly good hands. With T- Both Tyrion and Ser Davos are like good guys, good hearts, I think. Able to um, leaven things a little, you know, a little bit. Able to to see the humor in things. I think everything should pan out because of their presence there. I can I take one moment before. I yeah. don't know if we're going to leave Dragonstone, but I just want to comment one thing. If I could have my maritime minute here. Oh yeah, I was going to save that for another maritime moment at the end. But go well, on, your maritime minute. Well, because he he arrives in a single ship, Jon Snow does, which they then impound. Right. right. But when we first see it, it's like a two-masted Bermuda rig, sort of like a, a modern catch or yawl. And then when they're up on the cliff and Tyrion is looking down on it, now it's like a square rig with a, with a rear spanker sail. It completely changed rigs from one shot to the next. And I just, I, I that confused me. And I, once again, like they need a nautical consultant. I will volunteer my <laughs> services. Because Jon Snow says, oh, the winds were kind, your grace. Like right. when she's commenting on him coming down there, the winds would have to be pretty damn kind with the kind of rig that he was sailing. And also with how quickly he did it. Yes. Well, like, I have a theory that there is a somewhat substantial time jump between the last episode and this episode, because a lot of people have to travel to a lot of different places at the beginning of this episode. Do you think it's possible that the boat was under some sort of Melisandre glamour? You know, she's like a 2000 year old woman who's disguised as, you know, herself. Do you think that maybe she put a little a little glamour on it before she had her kind of smirkathon with Varys and then left? Interesting. That's a good thought. I'm trying to calculate because I feel like a boat like that probably could average about eight or nine miles an hour. And we've been told Westeros is a thousand miles long. You know, do the math. Like it takes a while to get. I don't know how wide the narrow sea is. If it's at the English Channel, it's like 15, 20 miles or something like that. Maybe 25. It takes time to do this stuff. Right. It is confusing. And how is the Iron Fleet is like everywhere at once and nowhere? Well, that's the other thing was John's boat would have had to have passed the Iron Fleet on the way down. 
If you look at the map of Westeros, right, right. Is King's Landing to the north of Dragon? I believe no, Dragon's, so. No, oh, Dragonstone no. is north of King's Landing. Oh, okay. So well, then, then they wouldn't cross. So they haven't, yeah. But yeah, we should definitely talk about the logistics of Euron's fleet. I mean, we're going to King's Landing next where Euron pops up. Euron and his fleet, they've attacked in between Dorne and King's Landing. That's not that long a trip. That's like Cuba to Florida, I think, sure. between Dorne and King's Landing, sure. right? Or Crete to Greece or whatever. Sure. And then he pops back up to King's Landing and then the fleet materializes in Casterly Rock. Which you is know, the opposite side of which, the map. Right. Yeah. So my, now, my was that I tried to interrupt you yeah. about that like so they had the Kraken sails, but was that the remainder of Theon and Yara's portion of the Iron Fleet or was that Euron's that, fleet? I I had some I couldn't quite tell. It was Euron's and here is my theory. My theory is because they have that one line about we don't know if it's even his whole fleet or where his fleet is or whatever. And clearly at least a week has gone by or two between last week's episode and this week's episode. So my theory is Euron and a skeleton crew take the folks to King's Landing and the rest of the fleet goes to Casterly Rock. Gotcha. That's will, the only way it will make any sense. I'm also going to claim credit if you remember in episode one Isaac I said the only thing that these boats could do is ram and board right and in fact in episode two they rammed and board you were sorely missed last week we poured out a little mead for you <laughs> uh yeah they ran and board that's i mean that's the only naval battles are just ramming and boarding like i don't know why they don't have archers lined up on the gunnels with flaming arrows but they i don't who yeah was it? anyway so uh <laughs> we move we move from the scene with Daenerys, which is very much about can you preserve the good parts of your family legacy and avoid the negative parts, right? And then we move on to King's Landing, where we get this sort of extended psychological torture sequence with Cersei, which is very much about how family drives her to do these sort of Baroque acts mm. of villainy. Rachel, what did you think of the scene with Cersei and the Sand Snakes? I thought for a moment, because of the episode description that said Cersei returns a gift, that she was going to let her go. And I don't know why I was stupid enough to think that Cersei would do something like that, but it was a brilliant piece of episode description right. because the gift she was returning was actually the... Was served cold. Yes. <laughs> the, long, the long goodbye or whatever the, the poison was called. Now, I have to ask you guys, where does this rank on the Game of Thrones excruciating scene, you know, because this was actually, I think, one of the most upsetting scenes I've ever seen in Game really? of Thrones. For me, there was something about how long it was, its duration, that it's like this woman's kid is being murdered. Maybe it's because I'm like a, a newish dad or I don't know. But it was like it went on for so long and it was so grueling. And, you know, they're in such obvious torment the whole time. And then she says that line about, like, change the torturing every two hours so that she's awake. You know, I mean, it was like so I mean, there was something about it that just struck me as even though there's been these Baroque scenes of violence, the psychological I know, torture. I was going to remind you, me. like, we've watched a man eat his son in a pie. We've, we've yeah, watched someone but, had molten metal poured onto their I know, head. But this I know. was more the psychological. <laughs> I know. But, you know, it's that thing that, like, Spielberg knew by hiding the shark the yeah. whole time. Right. It's like what's in your mind is scary. You imagine. Imagine was hilarious, like lo- watching her daughter slowly fester and decay. Yeah, they're going to keep her alive until her daughter rots. Right, and like maggots are eating out her eyes in front of her in the well lit chamber because the torches are being changed. Yeah, I mean it's bad. They also, oh, it's the of- torches. I heard it as tortures. No, no, it's the torches. They're, they're okay, that's less the upsetting. Torches, but it's so that she can right, watch right. the maggots eat her daughter's eyes Got out it. right in front. And think about the odor of that decaying yeah. corpse. You know, and the, the zombie mountain is right there. So, you know, <laughs> if she tries to do anything, you know, it's not going to work out. Yeah. I mean, it's bad. Cersei is, is a bad person. <laughs> but to be fair, it was an eye for an eye. Like, it. I mean, it, her daughter was killed. She chose exactly the same method 
of killing the other lady's daughter. Right. She just made her watch the actual <laughs> death part of it. But but it wasn't, you know, out of line. It did seem like the punishment sort of fit the crime hmm. to some degree. What confused me, I mean, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, was like when Jamie later talks to Lady Olena, I don't pronouncing that right, I call her Diana Rigg. When when Jamie's eye to her and is like, Cersei wanted me to kill you in all of these baroque ways, like flay your skin and hang you from the walls of King's Land. She didn't know at that point that Diana Rigg had killed Joffrey, and yet she wanted these incredibly baroque, horrible torture things. I mean, that's just maybe that's just Cersei. Maybe she just likes to <laughs> yeah, people yeah. in novel and horrible ways. Well, I think she felt like uh, Lady Yelena was an ally who had turned on her. She'd yeah. been there okay. in King's Landing with her. She'd sat at you know the Queen's Council or the King's Council at that point. Um, okay, so betrayal warrants flaying. Sure, I think pretty much everything warrants <laughs> flaying in Cersei's mind, but. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's it's a good point, but I think it was just that she had like fled and turned on her. Yeah, I don't think she brooks uh, betrayal. I don't think that's a thing that, of any sort. Uh, I think that it's a particularly emotional and psychological is is the valence for Ilaria because Ilaria has taken this thing that she really valued, and then with Elena, it's simply like I'm just going to hurt your body. Do you know what I mean? There right. is this thing of like crushing the person's soul right. is a greater act of violence than physically hurting them. But I also think that this is a sign that Cersei is just I don't know, guy. I'm going to go out on a limb here. Not a great human. Not being. a great person. And she also she did take the time to describe to Ilaria all the other ways she'd thought about right killing her daughter i thought it was particularly vivid when she was like i, I want to crack her skull open like a duck egg like yeah. i was like wow that's vivid image that's like she's got a real skill for prose when she you does know, kind of you know what in a if she had led a different life she could have been a great balladeer sure instead of uh, instead of the lady Macbeth of our show so and that also brings us to the iron bank browbeat editor sam adams tweeted out last night that you know finally the iron bank scene that we've all been hoping for but i actually have been kind of hoping for an iron bank scene oh, me too i was kind of like you know the bill for all this shit's gonna come going you know i like when they bring the iron bank because it makes to me it makes the universe feel more real and large and lived in like that there's this big bank behind things it makes me think about like sort of the quotidian details of this universe more like where are people getting their gold from and how are they paying i like that it's it's sort of hard to tell the iron bank is like is it like the Dutch East India Company that's sort of funding these missions to go conquer and plunder? Is it more like the World Bank or the IMF? Or is it just like Goldman, like it's a lender and it's like Deutsche Bank? It's hard for me to tell. And it's also hard for me to tell is like, are Cersei and the lenders, aren't they like a revolving credit line? Is it some kind of like individual lend lease with like military equipment what i want to know things like what are the interest rate what is their collateral like i don't i would like an entire episode basically <laughs> if they just went to the world bank uh, i could like to see their headquarters like to sit in on some like workouts in the conference room right. where they talk to people about like oh you come to brazos and this is all you can offer me like i, I would like to go deep on the world bank it sounds like you might also uh, enjoy that i would too rachel what is the apr do you think on <laughs> uh, on your uh, monthly line of credit from the iron bank I'm not sure, but I enjoy the fact that no matter how powerful Cersei gets, she can't actually outrun that debt. Right. Yeah. There's always some other institution or some other thing. You know, everyone is ultimately serving someone, right? It's just she only needs a fortnight, you know, to get him what he needs. It's pretty quick to gather all that gold together. It's a bit of foreshadowing for the final battle sequence, which we'll get to in in a moment. But I do want to spare some time for Bran's monotonal re-entrance into, uh, into the show when he shows up up north at Winterfell. You know, in that moment, just before he arrived, 
I was desperately hoping it was going to be Aria. I was so oh. much more looking forward right. to the Aria Sansa yes. reunion, especially because of the terms they ended on. And when it was Bran, I was so disappointed. Yeah, do we really care about Bran? Also, he came back and it was like he'd been on like semester abroad in Prague <laughs> and he was too cool. And he's like, oh, I've seen things you can't even right. understand. I felt like he was going to be like, have you ever read Herman Hesse? Like, I, he was like, he just came back and he was so cool. And Sansa's like, hello. And he's like, oh, I can't even describe to you the powers I have. <laughs> hello. I, I also like, I mean, it's very strange because he's seen everything and he knows everything, but he can't describe hereditary inheritance of a title. Which <laughs> Which is what he's like, I can't tell you, it's too complicated. <laughs> and he's forgotten the like basic level of social grace that you don't tell your sister about how pretty she looked the night she was raped for the first time. Yeah, that was that was one of the worst moments in the whole episode for me. You know, she's got some serious PTSD and he's just like, it was snowing just like this that night. Right. Mm. Also, get Hello, a new Brad. expression. Get a new, <laughs> like, he's just blank faced and I... Is he constantly watching because he's by the godswood, right? So is he constantly watching other events in time? Is it that he's distracted? Like, you know, if, if someone came up to you while you were watching Game of Thrones and they're like, oh, hey, do you want a pizza? You know, and you're like, huh, what? oh, yes. And I like peel off my VR headset. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> also, if Bran knows everything about this world, doesn't that just make him the biggest Game of Thrones super fan? Isn't that what he has actually <laughs> become now? He's like us. He knows all, He knows more than any of the individual protagonists. He's now. reading read, all the fan theories online. He's read the whole wiki. Sure. He knows, <laughs> you know, he knows, he knows everything. And is that how we'll finally get, you know, if you're one of the people who believes that Jon Snow and Daenerys are actually related, is that how we'll eventually get that information? Is that finally, because there's no one alive to tell us, right? So if it's going to come, it's got to come through Bran, right? I felt like that's what he was saying he needed to speak to Jon about. When he oh. said, I need to speak to John, I think he's he figured that out from the time he oh, went back to the uh It the seems battle. like he'd also be like an incredible military strategist if he knows where everyone is at all times. He, he could have warned anyone about like, oh, actually, the Iron Fleet is here. Oh, right. actually, Jamie Lannister's army is here. Like, you just tell <laughs> me, just tell us where they are. Which brings us to an interesting question that I've always had, actually, which is what is the three-eyed raven what is their mission? Why does the three-eyed raven exist in this world? He knows that Max von Sydow knew everything, and now Bran knows everything. It's too complicated to explain to you, Isaac. You wouldn't understand it. Yeah. <laughs> All right, fine. Uh, no, it is. It is. It's strange, and only can only one person at a time be the three-eyed raven, and it's passed down. It's like the Dread Pirate Roberts, or, or, right. or like, is it like Buddha, like, oh. and the new one. You have read Herman the Hesse. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the new Three-Eyed Raven only becomes the Three-Eyed Raven when the old one dies. Right. That seems like Grumpkins and Snarks to me. Grumpkins and Snarks, man. And we also see Sansa's two disturbing conversations. The other one is with Littlefinger, who espouses this unbelievably paranoid and chaotic. I mean, Littlefinger, the chaotic evil character, uh, you know, he has this unbelievably paranoid vision of what leadership is, that you should sort of, in a Nixonian way, imagine every, <laughs> every possible outcome. every <laughs> possible way that people are screwing you so that you can never be surprised. But Sansa's vision of leadership is micromanaging. She's like, you need to put leather on that breastplate. I'm like, oh, don't you have better things to do than look at how they're making the breastplates? That's micromanagement to But me. she's it's very delegate. good at her job. Didn't you think? I sort of watched this and I was like, Sansa should rule the Seven Kingdoms. Yeah, and maybe she will. Yeah, it's true. She's on it. I feel like she'd get bogged down in details, though. Like, don't <laughs> well, concern yourself with that. Hire good people and let them do their work. Yeah, but who are you going to hire? All the all the all the advisors are are seemingly. I mean, quite well, incompetent. I know. Not uh, even putting leather you, on those breasts. Are you as sick as I am of Littlefinger's like enigmatic half grin? That's all he does now. Is like it's like enigmatic half grins when he seems to like somewhat like mysteriously delighted by something. 
I feel like I've long gone on the record on this podcast of how much I loathe Aiden Gillen's performance on this television show and his unplaceable sort of Jamaican accent, <laughs> which is only which is only underscored by the fact that he rules a castle called the Eyrie. But uh, I'm really but Rachel, you are a first time uh, person on this podcast. I'm very interested. What do you make of Littlefinger's smirk and half raised eyebrow? Does it drive you up the wall? Well, I enjoy his performance. I uh, I've never been able to figure out. Littlefinger, and I think he's probably the only character left that I haven't figured out if I love or hate him. Yeah. I mean, it's it's getting closer and closer to hate, but um, there's a mystery there. Yeah, he's right. he's the most mysterious character and, at this point, and no one else is really a mystery on this show anymore because yeah. everyone clearly explains what they want all the time, right? <laughs> yeah. So yeah, oh, interesting. So a lot of other stuff happened this episode. Sam cured Sir Jorah's grayscale. And then had to uh, do a lot of copying of moldy scrolls as a result. John finally got his dragon glass. But I think that we have to zip forward to. I kept being like, oh, it's interesting. They're setting up in a later episode that there's going to be this. Nope, there's the battle and it's over. (laughs) You know, I mean, it's amazing how quickly they're moving. I like how they handled it. I thought it was great. It was like a heist film, actually. It was was exactly like Ocean's Eleven. It's exactly how they handled Ocean's Eleven, where they're describing the plan, and as they describe the plan, they cut to the actual execution of the plan. Yeah, no, I thought that was really great. And I think that there's a few questions that we have to ask. I mean, we've already talked about the Iron Fleet and how it manages to be everywhere at once. And the speed at which the show is moving is really fascinating. I want to skip all the way forward for a moment to Olena and Jamie and that scene in Highgarden. And, And Rachel, what did you make of that sort of... You know, Elena put a little bit of poison in Jamie's mind when she admitted the poison that she had put in Joffrey's glass. Yeah, I love that. She was one of my favorite characters. That was one of the the hardest deaths I've had to deal with in Game of Thrones in a mm-hmm. while. And I loved that she had the last word. You know, yeah. she's she's about to die, but she yeah, she just stuck that little dagger in. But I was looking at Jamie's face during that scene, and I was wondering what his actual reaction to it was because. He knew his son was awful. He knew his son was a terrible person. His son is already dead. So I was thinking perhaps he was more feeling vindicated in that moment that he had let Tyrion go. Mm. And in that moment, he finally knew he was right for doing that. I, I definitely think that he felt vindicated in that. My question is, does this conversation slowly turn his opinion of Cersei? Because Olena is right when she's like, I don't know what this delusion is that once you have peace and security, Cersei is going to be great. We all know she's just going to create another crisis because she feeds on crisis. Right. So uh, what did you make of it, Seth? Do you think Jamie is starting to turn against Cersei? Do you think that's the seed being planted here i felt he was maybe somewhat disturbed by how horny cersei got after she tortured someone that she had to immediately sleep with jamie although he did look delighted i guess in the bed sheets in the morning was happy to be together but then so she is like wants to just openly live in incest with him is like well we can just let people know now we can just tell people which is amazing because didn't this entire saga begin because they had to conceal the fact that they were in an incestuous relationship and now Cersei's just like oh come in servant check it out here I am boning my brother this is happening and well, there's like the, the inciting incident of the entire this entire all these years we've been watching <laughs> she's just like never mind well but she's the queen now she's a, yeah well, the I, queen can do whatever she wants cersei i think is fascinated by the raw exercise of power right yes. and that scene is really about i am the high status person and so the staff here in the castle is going to pretend that they didn't see what they saw and i and she delights in that 
You know, she's a superstar. She's the most powerful person in the country now, as long as she's within the three contiguous kingdoms that she controls. <laughs> so this brings me to two interrelated questions. I'd love to hear you guys weigh in on. The first is, can anything stop the Lannisters who appear to have all the cheat codes for this game? And uh, is Tyrion really bad at his job? I don't think Tyrion's bad at his job. I think Cersei is a genius. Ah, that's good. I think that, like, Tyrion's plan was brilliant, and then just showing that to be two steps ahead of Tyrion makes you, like, a mastermind at this chess game. Um, And that's what she is. Tyrion does appear to be terrible. Like, he has these incredibly complicated double bank shot strategies that then always actually fail, and yet he somehow remains close to people in power who still want his guidance, I guess, because he's, like, fun to be around, and he seems smart. (laughs) And Daenerys busted him trying to make himself appear wiser than he was when he claims that something he said was like, you know, wisdom passed down from right. wise men. In fact, it was something he'd made up on the spot. Uh, maybe she's getting, she's she's starting to be onto him. I do think the Lannisters can be stopped. Let's not forget these three dragons. And no one on Westeros has yet had to see what happens when these three dragons unleash hell on them. And I, I still have faith that these dragons do a lot. And I think if, in fact, Daenerys and Jon Snow can create this uh, ice and fire partnership and all the, the, the armies of the North and the dragons and everyone gets behind it, and if they can get the people of Westeros behind them because they have a higher cause rather than simply maintaining power with an iron grip, if they can get the people of Westeros to rise up in rebellion, that's what will really make the difference or get them united against the White Walkers. Or Right. I mean, we are at this point where, you know, Daenerys's Southron allies, you know, as the Wildings would call them, uh, are all off the table, right? I mean, it was Highgarden and the, the Dornish and they're gone. And so, I mean, where else is she going to go but north, it seems to me. Although I don't know that the Dothraki horses are going to do so great uh, in a like yeah. vast tundra Unclear, unclear how the how the Dothraki will adapt to icy <laughs> conditions. Yeah, but I think it's clear that nobody quite realizes, other than Jon Snow and the people in the North Sea, nobody quite realizes that this actual existential threat coming down from beyond the wall. And once they do, unless Cersei gets on board to stop them, you know, I think people could rebel against her and get her out of the way. And right, I also thought in an episode where you know people are talking about family and talking about politics a lot, I really loved that kind of Jon Snow. I'm going to keep using this climate change metaphor. For, right where he's like uh the seas are about to boil yes. can we stop squabbling about the debt ceiling do you know what i mean that it had that kind of like uh feeling of it of like politics is just a bullshit game and i don't care about that because there's this going yeah. on and i thought that was uh i think that's very compelling yeah i i would say i really liked this episode this is my favorite episode of the season so far and it's because there was a lot of talking and strategizing and 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 people trying to uh, manipulate other people to their ends and negotiating and i, I get i get bored in the very long extended battle scene Scenes where it's just like a lot of carnage. I get a little bit bored and I much prefer scenes, particularly when it's great actors like Diana Rigg having these conversations and trying to push their ends. That's the part of Game of Thrones that I really enjoy that power, the Game of Thrones, that right. those power plays. That's why I love the show. Uh, yeah, I love the way that like the personal was linked to the political on top of all that, that manipulation. What, what, what did you think? Did you like this? Yeah, I, I love this episode, especially for the humor that we mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. like having those conversation scenes with those like hilarious side characters. Yeah, I mean, I started watching this show for the politics of it all, so it was good to be returning to that. That's great. So now I think that's a perfect segue for us to talk about who is this week's worst person in Westeros. You're the worst shit in the Seven Kingdoms! There's plenty worse than me. Uh, Seth, why don't we start with you? 
Well, the the obvious answer would be Cersei. She right. does some, some pretty horrible things. I want to note she does it while wearing a pretty awesome outfit. Her Luke. Is that how you pronounce You know that L-E-W-K Luke? Is that a thing? You know what I'm yeah, talking yeah, about? Yeah, yeah, I know. It. Do you say it as Luke or is it just... Anyway, she's got a great <laughs> Luke. I'm just going to say it. Well, she's got this like metal studded dress with spiky metal shoulder things coming off of it. And I feel like if Hillary Clinton had worn something like that in the debates, like that's, a, that's like a powerful female politician thing. But I'm going to go a little bit off and not name her. There's a little too obvious for me. I'm going to say the worst person in Westeros is Archmaester Marwyn, played by Jim Broadbent, because it seems like um, Samuel Tarly has cured the mo- most problematic contagious disease in all of the kingdoms, Grayscale, which is the one that spreads. It's like a death sentence. He apparently has found the cure and can execute it. And Archmaester Marwyn, you might think he would like immediately convey in a panel, bring all the doctors from all the kingdoms together, share best practices, like go out to form clinics to treat Grayscale and eradicate this horrible disease that has been um, a blight on the communities for hundreds of years. But no, instead, what he does is he just punishes Samuel Darley. So I think like uh, if you just think about the amount of deaths that he could prevent personally simply by taking this cure and spreading it, I think he is the worst person in Westeros. That is a good answer. What about you, Rachel? (laughs) For me, it was Bran and we sort of already touched on this. (laughs) Oh, you didn't like him. (laughs) (laughs) He spent like four seasons of Game of Thrones just being incredibly boring. That was like the worst scenes. And now he's come back and he's creepy and rude And it's sort of like in all those years he was off growing up beyond the wall, he missed some emotional development and he doesn't know that it's not appropriate to remind his older sister of like the most traumatic thing that ever happened to her. And he's like, I'm sorry that happened to you. But, you know, just it's he's it's triggering for her and he's really not picking up on that. No, he has very little empathy for someone who no. can like go into, can act, literally warg into anyone's consciousness. He has like no empathy. Yeah. Right. Well, he did. Yeah. And he also <laughs> got his beloved sidekick killed because he was like too busy, you know, warging into him. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, no, that is a really good call. I think there's a lot of candidates in this episode, Cersei, for the extended monologue. I think Euron talking about how thirsty and horny he is to his <laughs> niece or cousin is, you know, or niece, you know, that's a bit gross and he's gross. But I am going to reserve it again. You know, Tyrion being outwitted by Cersei has gotten thousands of people unnecessarily killed. Sure. I think he's very good at the interpersonal politicking part of his job. But I think he's deluded by his success at Blackwater that he is a great military commander and it is costing thousands of lives and untold amount of treasure. And so I'm going to go with Tyrion. He should hire a general and just focus on the sort of chief of staff parts of the hand's job. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. All right, that's it uh, for this week. Join us next week when we'll be talking about episode four. Thank you all very much for listening. Thank you, Seth. Thanks, Isaac. Thank you, Rachel. Thanks, Isaac. Farewell. <laughs> Do we want to have a year, our weekly Euron Greyjoy <laughs> segment? I don't have much to say. I just, he's just so horny. Like, God, it's just, yeah. It's only motivating. <laughs> he is us. the thirstiest Viking there ever was.